The Garden Question is a podcast for people that love designing, building, and growing smarter gardens that work. Listen in as we talk with successful garden designers, builders, and growers, discovering their stories along with how they think, work, and grow. This is your next step in creating a beautiful, year-round, environmentally connected, low-maintenance, and healthy, thriving outdoor space. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an expert, there will always be something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Craig McManus. In this episode, we talk about the future of boxwood in the garden, a visit to Bunny Mellon's garden, and the return of the Norton Great to Virginia with Pat Riley. Pat educates homeowners and landscape professionals, teaching them how to select, care, and thrive the plants of their garden. She is a horticultural outreach specialist for New Gen Boxwoods and Saunders Brothers, Inc. You'll also find her at Merrillfield Garden Center in Northern Virginia. She has been an active Master Gardener volunteer with Virginia Cooperative Extension since 1995. Pat is happy to be breaking in a new garden where the bulb planter will actually work with her husband and two old rescue golden retrievers. She also tells stories and pours wine at the local winery. This is episode 94, Boxwoods Garden Future, with Pat Riley on the Garden Question Podcast. You're invited to engage with us on Instagram at the Garden Question Podcast. If you'd like to email me directly, the address is question at thegardenquestion.com. That's question at thegardenquestion.com. Please remember, your ratings and reviews are always appreciated. Pat, what does the future of the boxwood look like in our gardens? Of course, everyone knows that boxwood blight hit pretty hard. I feel really badly for all the people who had historic or even large plantings of boxwood because boxwood blight, if it does hit your landscape, is devastating. It does mean that you can't plant boxwood again for five years. The future is actually very bright in that there's lots of varieties that are showing great resistance or tolerance to the disease. There's lots of protocols for fungicide as applications as a preventative. There's lots of research going on about the possibility of even things like bacteria fighting that fungal disease. Other things that tend to affect boxwood, leaf miner is one of them that can be harmful to boxwood. If you know the time of year, May or June, it may possibly April in some of your listening areas, that you start scouting for it and take appropriate action, that that's not a big issue. Other than that, boxwood are just a fantastic plant to incorporate as a good structure when you're thinking about designing your landscape. I can't think of another plant that does as good a job as far as being sustainable, low maintenance because of its slow growth, just being a fantastic addition to any landscape. When I think of boxwood, and I guess it's because it's commonly used in a formal garden, there's hedgerows of it, either tall or short. There's a lot of other uses for boxwoods. Could you go over some of those? Oh, absolutely. You can have them as the edge of a border in a garden bed. They can also be foundation plants. They can be a particular specimen, depending on the structure or the habit that you're looking for. You can make them into topiaries, thinking about designing with boxwood that they don't have to be manicured. 
can actually take on somewhat of a loose look depending on which variety you pick. Yeah, they're very nice and formal settings, but we don't have to prune them that much. Let them be airy and open. That's a lot of different uses for boxwood. How about texture and color variations? Well, if you've got different varieties next to each other, that would be a contrast, but certainly you've got the variegated ones. Golden Dream is one that's a cream or yellow color and green that actually looks kind of lime green in the landscape if you're not close up on it enough to see the variegation. Others like Vardar Valley almost have a bluish green color to them. It is a subtle difference unless you're using one of the variegated ones, but they can add a difference in color and even a little bit in texture because some of the leaves are larger on some of the varieties than others. Get a nice variation that way as well. I consider a benefit is to having the winter colors, they turn a golden color, some of the varieties do. Is that an asset or is that a negative? Well, it depends on your viewpoint. In the garden center where I work, and they go, well, I just love that color. Well, I'm sorry, but it's going to disappear come spring when everything starts warming up and the leaves turn back green again. The bronzing, like cryptomeria or other even junipers in the landscape, they're evergreen, yes, but they take on a fall color and look a little different in the wintertime. To me, that's an added advantage because just having plain green in the landscape all year round is not my idea of the best aesthetic to have set off your other plants as well. For years, I always thought of the form of a boxwood as just a round ball. It may be, too, that they get pruned that way a lot, but there are different forms. Could you explore that with us? There's uh, low mounds that uh, some boxwood get wider rather than taller. They take up more space that way if you're looking to fill an area, keeping low and wide. Yes, there's a lot of them that naturally grow in a very round shape, and that is what a lot of people are looking for. Others are going to be more upright. I'm thinking of the new gen independence and freedom that are a little bit more upright in structure that form a tall oval. There's a derunk that's easily shaped into a nice tall cone, fastigiata, which is very columnar. Schmidt is another one that's columnar. Graham Blandy, narrow and tall, can even be used as hedges, but certainly to fit into a corner somewhere. Conical shapes, round shapes, and of course, if you're into the pruning thing, they can be made to look like boxes, two-ball topiaries or spirals. Any of those shapes can be obtained by boxwood. I think back on this instance, I had my garden center and we were adding landscaping to what we offered. This client had bought a house in Atlanta. They wanted us to come in and just rip everything out of the front yard. It was just a small front yard, but it had these little tiny boxwood in it. Me, being ignorant, didn't know what I had. They were really dwarf. I just didn't throw them away. I put them in pots, and people scooped those things up till we let them mature a little bit in the pots. Can you help me identify what that might have been? We think about what's typically been used as far as boxwood that stayed small. Some of those are maybe not the best selections in this day and age, but certainly ones like Seneca Insularis Nana will stay small. That is more of a mounding one. Some people might know the name Franklin's Gem. Interestingly enough, they go by two different names, but they're genetically identical. Those are both ones that are going to stay very small. The English boxwood, Buxus semperverens suffriticosa, that people call the dwarf boxwood, 
Unfortunately, those are highly susceptible to boxwood blight as well as some issues with leaf miner. Those are not recommended as a good planting anymore, and those were probably the mainstay of many landscapes and could have been that. There was also Morris Dwarf and Morris Midget, as well as Grace Hendricks Phillips, and those were all very small boxwood at mature sizes. Now, I would probably recommend something like Little Missy as well. Little Missy is one of those that you can just let go and it's going to stay two feet by two feet, so almost a little nice round ball for you. And that's going to be at the age of about 15 years old. I'll only grow at about inch to maybe two to three inches a year. Another one of those that would be great for containers or even when you want something small like that in your landscape design. Tell me if you found this true in the garden center where you worked that just about any small rounded leaf shrub, it could be just a crenata holly and they're calling it a boxwood. It's almost like boxwood is the generic term. Do you experience that? Almost daily. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime somebody comes in with some sort of a problem with a plant, first step is to identify the plant correctly. We do have some tricks that we can use with boxwood and the Japanese hollies, Ilex cornata, kind of demonstrate for them what opposite leaves look like and what alternate leaves look like using your thumbs and your arms to show them that. Send them home or even like snap off a little sample and give it to them so that they can go home and match up what they've got. Yeah, a lot of landscapes do have boxwood and people don't understand that because it is a slow growing plant. A lot of times builders all around our area where a lot of building has taken place in the last 15, 20 years that builders will use the Japanese hollies and people think they've got the boxwood. There's a learning curve for those homeowners. We do try to help them out with getting the correct identification. Is there research and development going on in the boxwood arena? What does that look like? New Gen Boxwood at Saunders Genetics, that's what we've attempted to do. And there's another organization with ties to Europe where a lot of research has been done trialing different cultivars and seeing how tolerant or resistant they are to boxwood blight. That's what we're focusing on now. The New Gen Freedom and New Gen Independence both showed not just great resistance to the disease, but their fantastic looking boxwood. That's what most growers are looking for when they're trying to breed plants that are going to be resistant to the boxwood blight. The research here in Virginia, Virginia Tech, making sure that you've got an inch of mulch under the boxwood from the drip line out, that that helps minimize the potential for infection of the disease. There's not just the breeding programs, but also the idea that if you use different fungicides of different modes of action in a set protocol, that that's a great preventative, kind of like creating a shield of fungicide so that the boxwood are not going to get infected. Then there's also the hope that some of the treatments that we're coming up or trying to investigate anyway, and looking at bacteria as a possible something that would munch up all the fungus so that it's not going to cause a damage to the boxwood plant. Between the new varieties, the practices that we know that are the best things to do to prevent the infection, as well as the possibility of treatments on the horizon, that's all very, very positive for boxwood. You said mulch to an inch. Why is that important as far as preventing the infection into your boxwood? Well, typically the spores of the fungus, the Calinectria pseudonaviculata, they're heavy spores. They can stick to clothing and tools, but they're also possibility of them falling to the surface of the soil. 
with an application of mulch, you know, like with uh, even how you mulch your tomatoes when your vegetable garden in the spring to prevent raindrops or irrigation from splashing those spores back up onto the plant. That's what the research has showed works well with boxwood is that application of an inch of mulch to prevent spores from splashing up onto the bottom leaves of the boxwood. We do like to have our boxwood foliage go all the way to the ground. That's kind of a double-edged sword there. So if you want that look, then certainly the mulch is very important for that. The reason we say an inch of mulch, boxwood tend to be shallow-rooted, so you don't want to add too much mulch. And what we see is an inch is sufficient, but not too much. That'll protect you from cold damage in the roots and, and also hold moisture in? Hold moisture, and additionally, it won't prevent moisture from getting to the surface of the soil. What are some of the practices that you could implement on your existing boxwood, or maybe you just discovered the blight in your garden? What could you do to head that off? Let's deal with your trying to prevent it or the practices that are best. Knowing what the symptoms look like, I would suggest you go to the university in your area or cooperative extension websites to see photographs so that you become familiar with the symptoms. The second thing is, is knowing that the spores are heavy and sticky, that if you have people coming into your landscape, whether they're working on the roof or mowing your lawn or actually doing some work in your garden beds, to make sure that they are also knowledgeable and that they follow the best management practices to prevent boxwood blight. And that includes sanitation of tools. It might even include wearing fresh clothing when you go from job site to job site. Even those workers are in areas where there has been the existence of blight, that they're washing their tires on their vehicles so that that's not introducing the spores into the landscape. Certainly keeping your boxwood healthy is important for prevention of any kind of disease or insect infestation. The health of the soil is going to make a big difference. Applications of compost to keep the organic matter content in the soil high is a good idea. Boxwood are drought tolerant, but that doesn't mean they can live with no water. So if it is times of drought, established boxwood would probably benefit with the application of water. Certainly new plantings, the soil water needs to be monitored for about 12 to 18 months. When you are pruning your boxwood, if you have to go from plant to plant, it's always best to sterilize your pruners. If you're doing that, you're even pruning roses or any other plants that have the potential for some sort of a fungal disease. Overhead watering is not the best idea. We know that from just the basics on preventing fungal diseases. Drip irrigation or soaker hoses at the base of the plant are best for irrigation on boxwood. Keep them pruned properly. Some boxwood like to be pruned and need to have a light pruning maybe in spring before the new growth start. That that will keep the branching stiff and can withstand snow loads that might break and cause problems. Even just having too little air circulation in the plant, considering that when you're doing your pruning as well. How do you get good air circulation back into boxwood? Oh, thinning cuts. One of the things that people like to do is they make meatballs out of boxwood and a lot of other plants too. You know that constant shearing like that creates a dense canopy. If not cut at a branch union or a leaf node, then the plant responds with a bunch of sprouts. More sprouts begets more sprouts, begets more sprouts. And of course, that creates a dense canopy. And under that, 
probably going to lose foliage because there's no sunlight penetrating and the air circulation is greatly diminished. The thinning cuts, the idea there is where you go down into the plant, depending on the size of it, but say you've got a three or four foot size boxwood or other kinds of evergreens too, go down into the plant six to nine inches, take out that branch or that stem at a leaf node or a, a branch union. Yeah, it creates a little hole there, but that's the idea. We want light to get inside and air to circulate as well. Doing that over the entire plant makes it all uniform and you've got a beautiful, healthy plant. Otherwise, you have a green shell around a lot of stems, right? <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> it. <laughs> Got to go on and take the next step and thin because of what you said. It's a healthier plant to do that. Think about other plants when people are doing that. and they All of a sudden, they're cutting down into old wood. And some plants are not forgiving when you cut into old wood. And you got like bare sticks instead of your evergreen shrub. Yeah, exactly. No boxwood blight should have gotten everybody's attention, but there are other things that we need to watch out for in boxwood. Could you tell us what we need to be looking out for and, and when we should be looking for it? One of the other issues, the boxwood leaf miner can cause some pretty serious issues if they're left to proliferate and cause damage. Around April, May, maybe even June in some of the cooler areas, if you see a little very fragile, thin, fly-like insect flying around your boxwood that's orange in color, that that's the flying adult of the leaf miner. The female will lay eggs in the leaf, and the larvae that then hatch is going to eat the inside of the interior of the leaf. Between the upper and lower epidermis, that tissue gets eaten away. It's almost hard to do anything about the adults because they're there and then they're gone. But there are treatments that can be applied as the larvae start to grow to take care of them and their damage that they might cause. I would refer everybody to your local cooperative extension to get the correct treatment for the boxwood leaf miner larvae that is recommended for your area. A lot of times people will see issues with their boxwood and what I'd advise them to do is Ask the question, is the damage showing up all over the plant or just on certain branches? If it's showing up all over the plant, you might start thinking about the root system. It could either be an abiotic cause, how it was planted, how it's been watered, how it's been pruned and treated, injury from cold damage, pruning at the wrong time. All of those are abiotic reasons for damage that shows up on the entire plant. The other cause can be phytophthora root rot. I know we've got a lot of clay in our area, so boxwood are not real tolerant of wet, soggy roots in the wintertime. That can cause some damage. There's uh, another thing that you can do if you see problems all over your plant and thinking it might be Phytophthora, is that you can kind of look down the stems and see if you see any loose bark. They don't turn back nice green in the springtime. Start looking for that. The other thing you can do is, if you're brave enough, you can take a sharp knife and you can slice off a little bit of the bark at the ground level. If it looks kind of dark and streaky underneath there, then that could be a problem. Generally, it's because it's not in real well-drained soil. The other thing, and this is particularly true farther south than we are here in Virginia, so what your listeners in Georgia and South Carolina and even farther south might experience is root-feeding nematodes. That's kind of a hard thing to diagnose, and it actually kind of mimics a lot of nutrient deficiencies. 
nematodes are really cool little organisms. And if you ever get into it, get online and look for some of the videos about nematodes because it's just super fascinating, but I diverse. Anyway, the nematode damage doesn't show up until almost the root system is really badly damaged. Uh, you can dig the plant up, and if you see knots on the roots and they're kind of blackened and lumpy, then that's likely a nematode issue. Easy to determine because there are nematode detecting labs that you submit soil samples through your cooperative extension. They can quickly determine if there is a predominance of root feeding nematodes in your soil sample then you can take action based on that. Other than that, there is another disease that doesn't mean the plant's going to fail, but volutella is an issue that does cause some yellowing, even turning red and bronze. That's another one that you kind of like look down the stem. That's going to be just on certain branches or certain leaves. Follow those branches down and look and see if you see like bark separating, and that's a good indication that you might have volutella If it's really hot and humid and you've got a lot of moisture in the air, you might even see the spores of volutella, which show up as like large kind of coral-colored dots on your stems. Clearly, that's a good indication that it's volutella. Volutella, you can create a, a better growing condition and it'll grow out of it. It's not that serious of a disease. There is boxwood decline, and grad student identified the pathogen for boxwood decline, so that's all kind of a cool new thing that's come up. That we don't see unless, just like with Volutella, if the plant is stressed, then that's when the problems are seen. Keeping your soil healthy and your plants properly watered and pruned, you'll be good. What about boxwoods in a container? Is there any tricks or interesting things we should know about that? The only thing to think about with that is making sure that you keep up with the water any soil in that pot, the nutrients are going to be depleted after a while. So you would have to make sure that the nutrition is there. That's a great one for putting in containers. One of the things that we always say at the garden center is, is if you're going to put something in a container, know what your USDA hardiness zone is and pick out a boxwood or any plant that you might put in a container, one that's two zones colder than the zone in which you live. Reason is, is they just don't have the insulation around the roots. Like here we're in Virginia, we're zone seven. If it can tolerate the winters in Chicago, it's going to be fine in a container. There's nothing better than seeing a beautiful concrete urn or a beautiful ceramic pot on either side of a formal front door with a boxwood topiary in it. Just gorgeous. Is there certain containers that work better than others? It just depends on more about the size of the plant that you're putting in it. Little Missy, if you chose that one, mature at 15 years at two by two. So you'd want to make sure that the plant is at least two feet across, if not a little bit larger than that depth as well. So the size is more important than the type of pot. Obviously, most of us know that straight terracotta does lose more water. And so watering would be a little more frequent, but those are general considerations for any plant that you'd be putting in. Just follow those and the box would be following the same rules. We all like to visit gardens. Would you tell us about your most inspiring visit to a garden lately? I had the opportunity to visit the garden of Rachel Mellon, who's known as Bunny Mellon, Of course, if think about the Mellon name, that's Carnegie Mellon University, the banking industry in Pittsburgh, and Andrew Mellon and Paul Mellon. Paul and Bunny lived in Upperville, Virginia, got to visit her garden. 
It's a dead of winter here. Even so, I think what was so inspiring about it is that more than the gardens that Bunny Mellon started a foundation to make sure that she could continue or her legacy would be inspiring people to research and be bold in their actions in their gardens and to continue to learn and promote the horticultural industry. The gardens, of course, were just gorgeous. Wealth is wonderful if you've got it and you can do just about anything with having gardeners that can keep up with espaliers along gorgeous stone walls. You can do about anything. She managed to do something with the architectural style of her home and how that blended with the garden around it. She had everything kind of in a rectilinear form so that the water feature was long and narrow. The different terraces were all very rectilinear. The pavers were set out that way. But what went on in between those spaces was just about anything goes. While you might have had the patio paved with everything being rectangle cut stone, that in between were succulents and herbs to kind of break all that up. Gardens themselves, there's a book that's out about the gardens of Bunny Mellon that people might want to take a look at. The foundation itself has branched off into some biodiversity. The one property is very, like you were talking about boxwood being formal, and yeah, there are boxwood there. The biodiversity research that's going on is inspiring too. The property does invite budding artists and researchers in horticulture to come and study there and do their research there. They are all fed by what's grown on the property. Farm-to-table dinners are done up there. The different types of seminars that one can attend, whether it's botanical art or whether it's learning about pruning or different types of bulbs to use, Varied subjects, but always trying to promote horticulture. Bunny has probably the world's largest collection of horticultural manuscripts. The idea that you could go and do research there has got to be intriguing to anybody who's a serious horticultural environmental science type of a person. Bunny also had an extensive art collection, and there is a gallery there. And because of the love of art, that's a big focus for the residents that have come there to study and to produce. She was a designer also of other gardens besides her own. Oh, yes. And when you talk about the White House Rose Garden, and she did the East Garden at the request of Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis. Yeah, she was self-taught, just an excellent designer on her own. What do you wish people would do differently when designing, building, or growing a garden or landscape? Designers have got a real challenge because most of the time you don't get the chance to know your clients very well. At the garden center, I see things that designers have done that bring immediate impact, which I think we all would like to have. But when you're looking at the client and they've got three kids and two of them in a strollers, they're not going to be able to keep up with autolucan laurels in a three by three foot size. It's just one of the big challenges is knowing your clients and then knowing the soils and the property itself. A designer might make a visit to a property and not be able to be there when the sun's out or to get the correct exposures of how the winds are predominantly blowing. When designing a landscape, I think from a sustainability standpoint, it's important to think about what's going to happen with that plant in the future. Pest-prone plants are something that disappoint the homeowner. 
one thing we don't want to do is discourage anybody from gardening. Designing so that you provide a beautiful landscape, but one that can be managed is really a challenge and it's extremely important. What is a garden myth you'd like to smash today? I wish people would stop looking at commercial landscapes and trying to mimic that in their home landscape. I think everybody wants to do that. They want to turn about everything into a meatball where that can be a interesting type of a garden to have everything round. It's really not that appealing. And with uh, most of the styles of our homes, our homes are not that formal. And trying to make it look like the bank or the McDonald's down the street is just not practical. And I just wish people stopped doing that. Frequently, we'll get folks that want a privacy screen and they see emerald green arborvitaes planted side by side in one long wall. From a design standpoint, the challenge is to try to open those people's eyes to diversity and how much more aesthetically pleasing it would be to mix in different species. Do you find that most people, when you suggest that to them, go, oh, I didn't think about that. Instead of a line of all the same arborvitae, let's put in maybe a group of three arborvitae and then right next to that have a blue point juniper and then have maybe a Nellie Stevens holly. We can mix in some tall shrubs. Even some small skip laurels is going to be enough of a screen for a lot of people. Thinking about just diversity and how important that is really for most of our ecosystems. What is your earliest garden memory? I'm an army brat. We didn't really have gardens when I was growing up. Get off to college, go to a friend's home, and you see a vegetable garden. That, of course, that's what you think of was earliest garden memories. Like, oh, well, tomatoes. Doesn't everybody start off with tomatoes? <laughs> From there, I think it just moves on. Why did you decide to pursue horticulture or the landscape profession? Oh, boy. My degrees were in history and German, later on in public administration. I'm a woman of a certain age that when we were growing up, you had the choice of being a nurse or a teacher. Blood makes me faint and kids scare the crap out of me. They smell the fear and they come in for the kill. So neither of those was good in my cards. My first jobs were in manufacturing. Getting to know technology was kind of a leap at that point in time. When you move to a different place and there's no manufacturing where you can work, then you start looking at something else. When we moved to Mississippi, I ended up at the Corps of Engineers running a microbiology lab doing bioremediation research on contaminated soils. That's probably where the garden leapt into more of uh, looking at the entire ecosystem and more concerned about the environment. From there, another couple of moves, and I saw an advertisement for the Master Gardener Volunteer Program. Signed up for that, and the next year I was uh, fortunate enough to become the county's program coordinator. I managed the Master Gardeners in a county in Northern Virginia for almost 10 years. That's where I probably picked up a lot of my knowledge about plant problems because that's what people do. They bring you the plant problem. From there, getting into the garden center and, and doing more speaking about it, there's nothing more fulfilling to me than helping people be successful in their gardens. Do you have a funny garden story for us? Since we were just were talking about the experience as a master gardener coordinator that I'd give quizzes. Training classes would go on and we had annuals, perennials, and bulbs. One of my quiz questions was, is how deep should you bury bulbs? The answer I got from one guy was, well, first you measure the length of the squirrel's arm and then you put the bulb deeper than what the squirrel's arm is. <laughs> so, <laughs> 
other than that, there was a time when someone was asked about a plant problem that they put in a Christmas tree, planted it outside, and it was dying. Go through the entire thing about what kind of tree was it? Did you plant it properly? Have you been watering it? Have you noticed any insects, damage, all of those questions, only to find out that the individual had planted a cut tree and thought it was going to grow. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> oh, that's awfully big cutting <laughs> to try to root. <laughs> <laughs> but we did have somebody else that need a replacement for this tree, and they've got the tag and everything. So you go over and show it, and they go, well, it doesn't have any leaves on it. Um, no, it's deciduous. It means it loses its leaves. You mean it's not dead? No, maybe wait till spring and see if it leaves out. I already cut it down. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Bless their hearts. <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, in your professional career, who's been your biggest influencer? Oh, man, that's a tough question. Bob Lyons was a professor at Virginia Tech, and he led the Hahn Horticulture Garden there for a while. He left there, and he was director at the J.C. Ralston Arboretum, and then ended up directing graduate studies at University of Delaware at Longwood. His approach to the garden and the stories throughout his life, I think he's the one that inspired me to really branch out and look at different groups of plants. Done lots of talks on birth grass and grubs and trees and things like that, opening up the world of bulbs and perennials and fitting it all together. Well, what's your most valuable garden mistake? Planting miscanthus. <laughs> How'd that go? It's an ongoing battle. And there's something about maybe as gardeners, we think, oh, but I can do that. You're not supposed to, or it's not supposed to grow here, but I'm going to try it anyway. I had a pretty large area. And I didn't know any better. So I planted miscanthus and, of course, seeds are everywhere. Battle to take that all out, go more towards native grasses. That mistake was made about 25 years ago. Still smarting from that one. <laughs> what have you recently learned about horticulture or gardening? I'm into tree hoppers. If you look at tree hoppers, they've got such an amazing morphology that has adapted for different areas. So maybe that's the entomology side of horticulture, but it's an intriguing species. And there is a group of people that gather West Virginia or that area of Virginia that's close to West Virginia, and they actually do tree hopper counts. There's a group of us that are thinking about picking our tree hopper hats and going and joining them for the tree hopper count one time. <laughs> <laughs> Where's the value of a tree hopper? Some tree hoppers do cause problems, but give me some time. I'll research it and I'll get back to you on that. I'm not exactly <laughs> sure what their place is. I know that they can be food for birds, but not sure what role they play. So I'll have to get back to you on that. Okay. I'd like for you to complete this statement. In my garden, I have. I have a whole new palette of plants. I garden in the shade and I have great stuff that goes in shade, distillium, elysium, of course, hellebores, epimedium, foam flowers, oh gosh, woodland flock, so many things like that. But now I've also got an area, different home site where I can garden in full sun. I have cardoon, barobolus, panicums, and the Missouri coneflowers. All kinds of new things that I'm getting to play with because of the sun exposure. What did you learn from your garden last year that you're going to apply this year? All these years, I've been kind of tough love on the plant. Throw the plant out there. If it takes to that spot, then we're all good. If not, then it wasn't meant to be. What I learned last year, now that I'm a little more concerned about the money that I'm spending on my plants, by keeping them watered properly, that's the biggest lesson I could have learned. <laughs> 
it's a big effort and it's part of the, maybe it's not so much tough love anymore, but that's the most valuable thing I've learned last year that I'll be keeping up this year. I suspect that my new landscape is going to be a little bit more sufficient on keeping itself well watered with the typical rains that we get. For this first initial period, I've been paying a lot of attention to that. What's your next garden project? In my new garden, my new home site that hope to include some more small fruits in that, as well as some more vegetables, incorporate that all into it. But the most important thing that I'm looking at now is because we are on the water and there's a concern about both erosion as well as sediment getting into the water, that's going to be the next big thing is to work on plants that'll help hold my slope so that we can improve the water quality and the river that I'm on. What plant are you in love with this week? It's a new heptacodium that I've just learned about called Tian Shan. T-I-A-N-S-H-A-N is the cultivar. If you know heptacodium, it's a great replacement for crepe myrtles because it blooms at the same time. It doesn't get crepe myrtle bark scale or aphids or sooty mold from powdery mildew. It has little small white blooms that tease you because they take so long to open up. The flower is extraordinarily cute in small clusters on the branches. The sepals are bright red, so even after the white petals fall off, you've got these bright red sepals that persist on the plant and act like almost a second bloom. You were a Master Gardener coordinator for 10 years? I became a volunteer and did the training and got certified. Then as coordinator, it was a great opportunity for me to build the program. We had up here, we're concerned about water quality. A lot of places in the country are. One of our main focus was to help homeowners with their lawns and applying the right products at the right time, seeding, mowing, right practices and all. Also developing a demonstration garden, developing a, actually we started off with plant a row for the hungry, but then gleaned at the farmer's markets to help provide food to the local food pantries. Very proud of all of that. I've continued to be a volunteer ever since then. So now we're working like on 25 years. I'm very active with the state association. In Virginia, the state association has tried to establish an endowment at Virginia Tech helps sustain the Master Gardener program. We'd had a couple of years where a lot of times when funding is short that those programs get cut. This was one way that the state association could make sure that Master Gardening existed in Virginia in perpetuity. The other thing we do in Virginia is we have an annual, we call it Master Gardener College because we go to Blacksburg and we're on campus and it's a very collegiate feeling basically our conference. Every year, a great opportunity for educational outreach. I've just been sucking at that fire hose for years and also have paid back by doing a lot of the seminars and workshops and things myself. Where do you start if you say, hmm, that sounds interesting. What do you have to do to qualify to be a master gardener? Look up your local cooperative extension office. Every state has extension because of all the land-grant universities. That's your best bet to start there. Find out if they have a program or if there's one nearby. Master gardeners take training, and usually it's 50, 60 hours of training over a period of weeks to months. After that period, you become an intern, during which that you start to put that knowledge to use as a volunteer giving back to the community by helping homeowners and landscape professionals with plant problems, with lawn questions, doing educational events, that sort of thing. You're extending the research that's done at the universities 
out to the public. It is a volunteer thing. There's a lot of work that goes into it. There's plenty of opportunities for education in all kinds of places, like your podcast. This is where you get trained to assist homeowners and landscape professionals with their landscape issues. I know one of the things that you do is you pour wine at a local vineyard for tasting. You've got a really cool story about a certain grape that was brought back. Could you tell us that story? Oh, sure. I'd love to. It's about the Norton grape. If you're in Missouri, you know Norton and uh, something very similar to it called Cynthiana. Norton is a red wine grape. Where it all started was with the British landing on the shores and seeing grapes growing in the trees, thinking, finally, we can throw off the yoke of French red wine industry. We can have the colonies grow all of our red wine grapes for us and make our red wine. Then they tasted what the wine tasted like. So the Concords and Lambruscas and things like that kind of makes a funky tasting wine. That failed. Well, more than 400 years ago, it was said that every landowner in Virginia, so we're talking early 1600s, were to grow 10 grapevines on their properties. Every landowner, 10 grapevines for the purpose of making wine. Winemaking in Virginia has been going on for more than 400 years. When they couldn't make decent wine out of native grapes, they tried to bring over vines from the old world, planted them in our crabby old clay soil with our high humidity and our different climate. That failed miserably. Of course, everybody knows about phylloxera, the louse mite in the soil that destroys the grape roots. Then the uh, attempt was on to try to hybridize something that would have the resistance and the ability to grow here well, like the native grapes, but it would actually be a decent flavor for making wine. There was a physician in Richmond, Virginia, Dr. Norton. He tried to hybridize the grapes. And think back to those days that we're talking about between 1820 and 1828. Didn't really understand genetics that well or pollination even. So he didn't cover his pollinated flowers. What he thought he was doing with the grape wasn't truly the parentage. It didn't matter because the result was something that created a very good tasting wine that was known as Norton's Virginia Seedling. I think the organization is Price in New Jersey that they had that in their catalog, and I think that company still exists. But anyway, the vines prospered and wine was made. About the same time, the German immigrants were populating Missouri because the topography was very similar to what they had in their homeland. Germans tend to have vines out in the back and make their own house vine. That's what they were doing with the Norton grape. Do you know that Missouri produced more wine than any other state in the nation at one point? They produced a Norton that actually did very well at an international exposition in Vienna in 1873. So that at least put American winemaking on the map. It was the Norton. Then now it comes prohibition. So And we all know what happened there. All the vines were destroyed. Every bit was poured out. And it wasn't until the 70s that somebody tried to bring back winemaking in Virginia. Because, you know, when you get rid of prohibition, the easiest spirits are going to be alcohol or liquor and beer, not wine, because it's a longer proposition. In the 70s, they started bringing back winemaking in Virginia and in Missouri as well. A couple in Missouri knew that there was a property where the Norton grape was growing. Now, stories do say that the vine survived because it was used to make monastic wine. 
The story is not quite that holy, actually growing on a bootlegger property. A couple knew that the vines were there, so they bought the property, went and got the vines and started propagating them. At the same time, there's gentleman, Dennis Horton. He passed away a few years ago, a great source of entertainment for all of us here in Virginia. He had grown up and played in the caves of that very winery that won the 1873 exhibition in Vienna. He knew that the Norton vines were existing in Missouri, so he went back to his home state of Missouri and brought the Norton's Virginia seedling back to Virginia and started growing it here. Makes a great wine. I'd caution that if you want to try it, that you look for something that's a good six to 10 years old. A lot of people enjoy the jamminess the grape naturally expresses. Intriguing story about everybody, even about Dennis, where he got out of the service. And the reason that he actually had money to go start his own vineyard, he was working for an office supply company. And he gets a phone call one day, and the voice on the other end of the phone says, I need three paper shredders, and I don't want you to use a trucking company. I want you to deliver them yourselves, and I'll pay you when you get here. He loads up the paper shredders, gets out there to deliver the paper shredders, and it's Oliver North, and he's shredding the Pentagon Papers. Dennis had his successful office supply company business, and that's how he managed to start his own vineyard. There's a book out. It's called The Wild Vine. The last name of the author is Kleiman, K-L-I-M-A-N. It's one of those that's not exemplary writing, but great research, and uh, so it's, it's an entertaining read for sure. I don't know a gardener where deer doesn't seem to be a concern. How do you design with a boxwood with deer in mind? Deer tend to avoid boxwood. When you're designing and having to deal with deer, so many of us are living at that wildland-urban interface that deer are a problem. And if you think a four or six-foot fence is going to keep deer out, it's not going to last for long. Because deer will avoid boxwood, think about using boxwood on the perimeter of your area. If you know where deer are coming into your landscape, if they have a certain path or something like that, there's some other strategies you can use. Maybe you don't really want to hang fishing line or hang up uh, white rags to mimic white-tailed deer danger signal. Go ahead and plant some boxwood and use that kind of as a barrier for them to enter into the landscape. If you've got some very vulnerable plants, it would make sense to have a ring of boxwood shrubs, the smaller ones, and then have your more vulnerable plants on the interior of that area that the deer will definitely not try to munch on the boxwood to get to the other plants. Deer will not enter an area if they don't see a way out using the boxwood as either hedges or walls, let's say, and making it so that you've got a little garden room and lining that with boxwood is a great way to have all the plants that deer want to eat, but they're not going to enter that area, not just because they don't like the boxwood, but you're using the boxwood as a collusion so that they can't really see their way out of that garden room. If you have things like boxwood on the edges of your garden areas, that would certainly allow you to have things closer up to the house that the deer would prefer to munch on. And maybe they'll just move on to the next property then. Does the aroma from a boxwood tend to deter a deer? I think that's it. I don't think that it's a particularly good feel in the mouth. Of course, when deer are starving, they'll eat anything. Typically, any of the kind of stiffer more leathery leaves are not particularly appealing to deer as well as the smell. I can't think of anything better to make your paniculata hydrangeas look better than boxwood. A really good combination there. Deer tend to like the paniculatas too. <laughs> yeah, they do. <laughs>
I had some oak leaf hydrangeas that I just started calling them dwarf oak leaf hydrangeas just because the deer would always munch them down about two feet. <laughs> and, I, and I ended up transplanting them to another property, and those things flourished. They got on up to their normal size. They were dwarf in my yard. There's a really good book by Rhonda Massingale Hart about deer-proofing your landscape. She goes through the entire life cycle of deer so that you're a little bit more aware of what times of year you should be more vigilant. Talks about everything that you've ever heard about as far as like how to keep deer from eating your landscape the pros and cons of all that. But more importantly, she actually outlines a series of actions based on the type of damage that you're seeing. This level of damage where it's just light browsing or something like that, and it might be just in spring, that requires static passive type repellents or deterrents, like, you know, planting boxwood or other smelly plants and leathery plants, then goes up from there. Good reference to have. I'll have to check that out. I wasn't aware of that book. Pat, tell us how people may connect with you. The simplest way is to just write to me at ask, like ask a question, ask at saundersbrothers.com. This has been episode 94, Boxwoods Garden Future with Pat Riley on the Garden Question Podcast. Thank you, Pat. You're awesome. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time. Please generously share the Garden Question podcast with your friends, relatives, and neighbors. Check out our website, thegardenquestion.com, for links, resources, and where you can listen to every episode again and again. You will not want to miss a weekly episode, so please subscribe to the Garden Question podcast with Craig McManus on your favorite listening app. Keep on designing, building, and growing a smarter garden that works.